Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. My name is Brooke McCallery. Episode three, Ben McCallery. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Yoda. <laughs> Just changing it up, keeping it keeping it spicy. Keeping it fresh. <laughs> uh, yeah, welcome. Welcome to episode three of our final season of the year. We have a return guest coming to your ear holes this episode, and it is none other than Low Tox Life's Alex Stewart. Alex Stewart, indeed. Friend of the show. So Alex, as many of you will know, is the host of the Low Tox Life podcast, founder of the Low Tox Life movement and author of Low Tox Life book, which came out a couple of years ago. She and I have chatted on the podcast before, and I'm going to link to those episodes on the show notes. Uh, I've also been a guest on her podcast. But today we really focus a lot on the topic of food Mm. and how we can change our habits, change our mindset around food to benefit not only our own health, but also the health of the planet. And that is off the back of a book that Alex has released um, just at the end of September. So it's out now called Low Tox Life Food. She and I kind of just jumped straight into the conversation. So just as as a, a... very brief backgrounder. I mean, I was really keen to talk to her, so I didn't sort of do the, can you tell us a little bit about your book, Alex? Um, I was very pumped. So the byline or the tagline of the book is how to shop, cook, swap, save and eat for a happy planet. And I mean, essentially that's about all you need to know other than Alex opens up her book in the way she opens up almost all of her work by trying to find common ground. So, you know, it's really easy to get lost in the black and white mentality of food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you and I were talking about this recently, actually, um, because you were like, you bought some liver to eat. (laughs) Right? Which is fine. (sighs) I have no issue with that. Just trying it. Just trying it. I just wanted to try it. I never tried it. I, I I don't eat meat, but I actually appreciate the movement of nose to tail. Yeah. But then we were, we were talking about it. I'm like, well, have you looked into the benefits? Like, why why are you choosing to eat liver? You're like, well, this person on Instagram said, you know, oh, it's no. a good move. And I'm then I'm sorry. like, but have you looked into the actual... Vitamins and minerals is all I'll say. Sure. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying how easy it is to kind of buy wholeheartedly into a philosophy around food and... I certainly have done it. When I first became vegetarian, I was very close to going hardcore vegan for for similar reasons. And it's about kind of landing in a place that makes sense for you and then working out a way to kind of align that with your values. And obviously with Alex, her values are about planet, you know, making sure that what we're eating has either as little a negative impact on the planet as possible, if not a positive one. So we talk a lot about regeneration. We talk about how there are farmers using um, cattle to rebuild the soil, uh, you know, and how that flows on into whether or not you choose to eat meat. And if you don't eat meat, what other things do you choose to eat? Does Alex eat meat? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and she talks about that. Yeah. Um, and why, you know, why she chooses to eat meat, but also how she chooses to source it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, we, we kind of, we don't come at this conversation from a place of having it all sorted. You know, it's very much invitational and like, come along, let's learn together. Now, I've got to thank Alex because 
She's got a lot of resources on her website. She does. And most I'm most thankful for her gluten-free brownie recipe, which Brooke makes very, very well and reasonably often. <laughs> I do. They are it's actually so good. Oh. Like I think it's the best brownie recipe ever. Yep. I will just say that and links to the links to that in the uh, yeah. So Alex got heaps and heaps of resources on her website, which is lotoxlife.com. So I will also link to her book in the show notes, both of her books, um, her website and her Instagram, where she shares a lot of um, really again helpful resources, not only about food. Uh, so initially. Alex sort of focused on food, but she will often share resources and links about personal care products and, you know, making swaps that reduce the toxic kind of load in your home. So if that's something that you're exploring, I would definitely recommend following her and um, grabbing a copy of both of her books. All right. Well, enjoy the chat. Alex, hello. How are you? Hello, Brooke. How are you doing? I'm doing all the better for speaking with you. Yay, <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to start out by actually congratulating you because you have you have birthed a delightful second book baby into the world this year just recently in September um, and I know for a fact that that is not an easy thing to have done over the last couple of years so um, congratulations and how are you feeling now that <laughs> now that she's out thanks yeah this one definitely felt like a big labor. You know how they say like it's birthing a book. My first book just felt like it just made such sense before it started being penned that it was just a process of getting everything that I knew I wanted there out on paper and out into the world. Kind of like artists with first albums and then the second album comes and there's all the pressure from publishers and things because you've done so well and um, you, you want it to be as important as the first one was to your audience who keeps telling you how important it was to them. And, and I'm not one to normally feel external pressure, but it definitely did help as a vehicle to help me know what wasn't right. So I actually scrapped the entire first iteration of the book last February. You, you did too. too. <laughs> yeah, you did too, right? I know. So initially it was going to be quite a, it was going to be a two-part release. So there was going to be a print book and then a recipe book to accompany. And the print book was going to be all of the science on food and climate change. And then the recipe book was going to bring it to life. And so I watched, I can't tell you how many different types of lectures I watched, two and a half hour soil science lectures by professors in universities in Scotland and all sorts of re- uh, desertification reversal project um, lectures and how things work in different ecosystems and how, you know, so many things. I, I could go on and on. And I was watching them all. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't be this person. I can't be as smart as this person. I can't tell the story as well as this person. And I can't distill what this person has to say to the point where, I can put it neatly into chapters that I can see in my mind. Mm. And I couldn't see the wood from the trees the whole time I was trying to formulate this print-only book. And so one day, three days before I think we had initially decided the first draft was due, my publisher calls me, Jane, who's like a legend, and uh, she said, 
you're not feeling it, are you? And I'm like, and I just burst into tears. Oh, yeah, I get I was that. Like, no, I'm not. It's not right. It's not right. And as soon as we had that moment, I think it took about 48 hours and then the book came to me as clear as day. Ah, oh, that's really interesting. Um, so this is all kind of in the back, you know, with the backdrop of the pandemic and all mm. the, you know, the rapid changes and shifts. all of that was just coming out last, right. the beginning of last year. Exactly. Mm. So there's something really, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's something really positive in what you just shared as stressful and painful as I can imagine it must have been. There is a, like a power that comes when we tune in, you know, mm. when we really go, okay, there's something. Well, when push came to shove, I just knew I couldn't come out to the world with that thing. Mm. So I think where you landed though, as a result of that is somewhere that is so gentle and open and, um, you know, so to give, to give people a bit of background, I already spoke about it in the intro, but to give people a bit of background um, about the premise of your book, what was your aim with the second, like the second writing of it? What did you hope to achieve with the book? Mm. First iteration always felt like this energy of trying to prove and either win or dispel arguments that were out there. And that's not me. It never has been. I am a grey area champion. Nothing is set in black and white um, unless maybe it's the colours of the rainbow that we've all decided that that's what red looks like and okay. Um, But I just always find peace and progress when we focus on overlaps rather than differences. Mm. And uh, I've studied history. I've seen that to be the case. If you look at applied history as a science, humanity moves forward when we focus on what we do the same, what we feel the same, what we believe the same and what's important to us. Um, And then the different bits can exist outside of that. But it's like we're we're happiest when we're one giant Venn diagram. Mm. And, um, And so as soon as I got there in my mind, I wrote the book that was reflective of that. So what is it about food that we know to be true for sure when it comes to supporting and serving our planet from our plates? And what can we gently expose where people are being told some porcupines um, and some narratives that are maybe making them see a skewed version of reality, whether that's the fully pro-meat people or the fully pro-vegan people or people who are a bit lost in between. And how can we take the conversation away from people fighting about what whole foods are best mm. on uh, on Instagram uh, because that just is crazy to me and completely convenient for the true saboteurs of our planet who are big ag, big tech, big food. Uh, they want us to keep arguing about beans and meat um, while they know our shopping trolleys continue to have 50 to 70%, depending on the country, of ultra-processed food in them, causing more pain, more death, more suffering for animals, planet and people than anything else put together. And Mm. it just felt like such a useful overlap from where we could begin to change things. And so as soon as, as it was just such a relief to start playing in the overlaps because then the pressure was off to sound 
super clever, like I had studied soil microbiome for eight years um, and was able to give lectures on it. I'll leave that to the likes of Walter Genner for now. But I was able to bring the work from these incredible people through time who have so clearly shown us what it takes to have thriving ecosystems. And remember, you can't have a thriving planet without lots of thriving local ecosystems. And, And so at least what I knew to be true was that you absolutely 100% need animals within agriculture to create healthy ecosystems, to have healthy um, soil, to have healthy water systems, to have healthy water retention in soil so that doesn't all run off. Everything works together. And so to try and segregate parts off to create something better literally goes against everything that nature's done so far um, right. in, in its beautiful lush past. So, um, so yeah, I, it just made me think, okay, there's actually a way we can all do this no matter how we eat and no matter what sits with us preference-wise, belief-wise, ethics-wise in terms of the way we see and be in the world. Um, but we can also acknowledge that we need all types of eaters if we notice what's really important to healthy ecosystems. Mm. And then we can all be the best eaters we can possibly be and um, minimise waste and, and reduce ultra-processed food um, and start getting to know our farmers better. So it just became these three obvious overlaps that we all have no matter how we eat that I wanted to inspire people on a journey through. And I think you did that really beautifully. Um, it called to mind, have you read Braiding Sweetgrass? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So oh, that part in um, in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book where she she talks about, you know, the meetings that she would attend where it was two very oppositional sides of an argument mm. and the way that they would begin these meetings um, would be let's decide on what we agree upon. And from there, you can absolutely have robust conversations about opposing points of view and why, but it's really difficult to dehumanize another person once you've agreed upon what you agree upon and you say well I can see our common ground here I can see that you know you are operating from a place where you think this is what is best as am I so let's at least agree upon that so you know you've really taken on two massive massive topics of um, climate change you know and the impact that humans and the way we live are having on our planet and Mm. food and these are both topics that can really invite hostility um, in the conversation and you've just from the get-go, broken that down into a really human um, mm. framework. And that's not easy to do. So I applaud you for doing that straight off the bat. <laughs> it's hard because, I mean, I, I have so much compassion for everybody who, mm-hmm. who knows that there's a certain way of eating that makes sense to them very deeply, yep. whether that's because it makes their physical body feel right, whether it makes them feel at peace in their head. Um, there, are, there are a lot of things that have been built over time that have had people arrive in certain ways of eating and being. And mm. so it's, I, didn't, I just didn't want to accuse people of anything um, because no one gets anywhere without truly believing that's where they are and <laughs> that that's their truth right now. Um, yeah. So that just wasn't going to be useful um, in the end to try and dismantle hard beliefs, but to just rather gently point out we're not always told the whole truth and sometimes kind of like big oil tries to engineer very specific narratives that keep us fighting about certain things so that they can continue to do their dirty work in the background. The reason big oil is in the food debate is because 
they make all the packaging mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they definitely don't want to lose that business. So, um, you know, there's a lot behind the narratives that end up on Instagram that we know nothing about. And yeah. so I just wanted to gently start pointing those out so that we could perhaps broaden the debate and start to be useful instead of fighting all the time. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was going to say next was that through doing that, you have offered us a way to um, use the food that we buy, um, where we buy it, where we source it from as a form of practical activism. You know, it's once you become Mm. informed about the, you know, the packaging and why certain narratives are taking over where, you know, the truth is probably far less black and white, you get to do something you know, and, and that something matters. And I see over and over again in the conversations I've had this season, conversations I'm just having in general is this idea of the power of our, our actions. And no matter how small they are, mm. they are incredibly um, transformative if we allow ourselves to see them as something that has, you know, a real impact. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess there's a, a a countercultural heart to what you write about too. Mm. Is that something that comes naturally to you? <laughs> uh, okay, so I I definitely had that vibe all through high school. Especially, I met one super special friend to me. We became very close, and we both felt like we were just different. Mm. We both grew up in the eastern suburbs, and we of Sydney, and we both felt different to like down to the point where we didn't like the conversation, the trivial, we called them trivial conversations that everyone was having. We wanted to nerd out, go deep, think about why things got the way they were. So I was definitely always a thinker Mm. below what I saw around me being talked about. I was like, okay, that's interesting that everyone's talking about that, but why? And Mm. like what's really important here? And so yes, I guess so, because <laughs> that's I very clearly remember that from me as a, as a sixteen year old, and I also remember in first year at uni, the uni I chose, it was like all the private schools were together, but now at uni, and it was all the same people, and I was like, shit, this is where I wanted to meet the rebels, <laughs> the free thinkers, the people who, you know, like the university for me was going to be this massively cerebral event. Um, and people were talking about social skiing. I was like, I don't even want to ski. And so um, and joining like the young libs. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to join political parties and ski. Maybe I'll join Greenpeace. And so I did. But then everyone was just angry all the time in Greenpeace and not doing anything in the in the uni group setting. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not speaking about them as an organization. They're extremely effective in certain areas. Um, but anger also didn't resonate with me. Right. So I was always just trying to find a way to make a difference in the world that felt like I didn't have to ignore who I was as a person, but that also felt like I could have the confidence to do things that I didn't see around me. Mm. So long answer to your question. Yeah, I guess so, Brooke. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I can sense like even then, like even when you were still in that, you know, that era of life where you're figuring out who am I, what do I stand for? Like you were looking for practical application from I was. the get I was looking for people doing stuff, yes. not just talking about stuff. Right. So you were already yeah. like over the idea of people talking, talking, talking and not actually mm. doing. Um, yeah. So it makes perfect sense to me that you've landed where you have, yeah. which is... 
you Thank know. you for helping me figure that out. I feel like this was a free psych session. I really appreciate that. <laughs> hey, look, no worries. <laughs> I'm here to serve. Um, no, I'm always really curious because I think that there is a really strong thread of countercultural kind of thinking, but not necessarily in the, the stereotypical way that we think of countercultural um, living in, you know, the slow living space, in the intentional living space, in you know, the kind of spaces that you and I cross over in our work mm. as well. It's kind of interesting to me that it's very much occupied by, you know, people who you would look at and go, you're not like, you're not a countercultural figure. Yeah. Well, we assume counterculture is like going completely against the grain and almost abrasively so. Exactly. And there's um, that anger as mm, well. I'm not abrasive. Mm, Definitely yep, not. No. I always try and find a gentle way forward yep. where, you know, can't we all just get along? That yep. old saying from the movies. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. And I think what you also do really well is remove the topic of perfectionism from the conversation completely. It's not, we're not talking all or nothing um, in any of these efforts. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, why it's so important that perfectionism um, just disappears in this, in this conversation? Yes. Okay. So this goes back to when I was uh, deciding on writing a blog for the very first time 12 years ago um little bub asleep and I'm thinking you know I'm gen x so you had to have a really original idea that you'd never seen anywhere before um these days it seems to me that everyone can just call everything anything that they've ever heard before and just take it on board um which I'm still getting used to and I think that's part of what makes me feel old right now but I really wanted to birth a phrase I wanted something for a lifestyle that I hadn't seen before that was going to um, encapsulate the thoughts I was having about my own progress in cleaning up personal care and cleaning products and food and, um, uh, you know, banishing some of my chronic things in my teens and 20s um, by changing things up a bit. And I hated, I I was landing in places or rather um, moving away from words like know this or free that or Mm. quitting or zero or I just those words aren't human yeah (laughs) Yeah. literally they're literally not human we are not good at anything zero quit like it's just not linear Mm -hmm. the human I mean you know those diagrams where they say you know me and success and then it's like this little like kind of super messy um biro squiggle in between and then the person comes out the other side Um, That's life. That's the human experience. And I think to then try and suggest that we could do anything perfectly by anyone else's definition that is not you Mm -hmm. is why everybody fails protocols, is why Jenny Craig's statistics say that only 11% of people keep the weight off after five years. Is what you know, you could rattle off so many change stats Mm. of what would look like failure because you were measuring it against what perfection looked like. Yeah. But if you actually take all of that away, then what we're left with is a big fat listicle of all the things we could do to move forward. What's resonating with you today or this week? Get on with it. Yeah. Have a go. And that just gives permission for people to explore, for people to learn along the way. And I know that that's how I've always done best trying to implement change in my own life. I remember, Mm. you know, 
when I would be sick home from school or on the holidays watching Oprah in the 90s, all those diet like protocols, you know, Suzanne Powder came out with the brown rice diet and then there was the other person. Then there was Richard Simmons with the seven minutes a day, seven days a week and like all the things. I mean, that was just the early 90s bottled up and I would try them all but never really with any conviction because Mm. guess what? Someone else would be on the scene telling you to do something else the next week. And that's, again, the reason we fail to progress because the narrative always changes, the celebrity always says something different the next week and someone else comes in, says something completely different. Oh, we're doing it this way now. Mm. It's like, well, what are the fundamental things that help us move forward? What do we know for sure to be good and true? And that's really where, and that's really where we should start from. And unfortunately that can't be productized to make millions and billions of dollars, or should we say fortunately, because if we get away from that hyper commercialization of perfection, then that takes the pressure off as well. Like, Mm. oh my God, I spent $3,000 doing this uh, exercise program last year and I only lost one kilo. And then how does that make the human feel? Whereas if we take the money out of it too, then maybe it actually helps take the pressure off. Yeah. And I think that's a really important question to ask is, you know, if money is changing hands, particularly, you know, in like those sorts of programs or, you know, whatever it might be that you're looking at and it's, and it is like trend based, right. It's got, it Mm. reaches this critical mass um, and it's almost frenzied just stopping for a second and asking ourselves like, who's benefiting from this? Is it me? (laughs) (laughs) Most probably of the time not not yeah <laughs> you know and, and just having having the giving ourselves that little bit of extra buffer in our heads in our decision making processes to stop and ask the question mm. um, I think that that is probably a, a really helpful crossover between the work that you and I do as well is sort of the importance of asking the questions and the importance of carving out space in our lives even if it's just a moment a day to stop and pause and ask the question before moving on yeah Um, and I think you could expand that to you know to reflecting on do I think I need to take this action because someone else is telling me to because I think it's the correct and only way to do things or is it because it feels like it's resonating with me Mm. and the word resonate is so key because Okay, it gets complex here because what resonates with us is also based on where we are right then and right there. And if we're somewhere that we've been led wrongly to begin with because we've been looking for the truth out there and instead of in here and because we've cut off ourselves from nature so badly that we have to relearn what the connection is and then we end up learning what that connection is through someone else's Mm. decided lens of what that connection is, then it can get really murky because what resonates can actually bed down deeper mistruths in an individual. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, misinformation and um, uh, looking to get informed via social media can Mm. be quite problematic because, you know, if we find ourselves in that place already, um, the way that social media is structured, algorithms and whatnot, you're probably going to find many of the same voices amplifying the same messaging rather than opening up you know, opening you up to a, you know, a broader pool of thought and information. Absolutely. And I mean, let's go back to business textbooks for a second. Well, actually we were never there, but I want to take there. Let's go Um, to. (laughs) Let's go to business textbooks. 
If you look at the chapters on problem solving by some of the best experts in the world, you know, I've worked for myself since 2007. I've run two different businesses simultaneously along that time. So I've often turned to business textbooks, especially for my other business, which is more business-like, let's say, um, more client services. And you will always see that the best way to solve problems is to bring someone in from every different type of department within a big business. So make sure you've got representatives from the accounts team, the sales team, the marketing team, the HR team, uh, the CEO, uh, the customer service team, the logistics people, uh, and um, any if there's a retail component, the people who are working front of house. And you will then solve problems really well because you bring lots of different minds to the mm. problem who see things lots of different ways and they help you flesh out the different ways different humans see things to arrive at a place that actually works. So what we started to do, unfortunately, today, and I was talking to a, a colleague yesterday um, who is a very smart person, like won the university medal in his science degree type smart person, and he said, unfortunately, we've actually politicised too much. Mm. Allowing money in politics, and I totally agree, um, has meant that we've arrived at a place where one medicine is seen as Republican and the other medicine is seen as Democratic. I mean, how freaking dangerous is that? Right. Because no one then on either side of that fence is thinking particularly deeply about either of those medicines because you don't go against your party. Right. You're not going to cross that line. It's like we're in 1930s Europe all over again. Mm. And so we stopped walking across the aisle in so many different situations um, in food as well. Vegan people follow vegan people. Meat-eating carnival people follow carnival people. And everyone starts blocking everybody else who thinks differently. And then we, oh, my gosh, where do we arrive? We arrive exactly where the people controlling the narrative want us, which is against each other. Divided, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so... What someone listening to this is, you know, what you're saying is resonating. You're like, yeah, I've probably fallen into that trap of the echo chamber that I've built around myself. Oh, we all have, by the way. No one is immune to this. No. Including myself. Yeah, no, absolutely. I put my hand firmly up in the in the air for this. How can we start to spread our, you know, our roots out a little further afield? And how do we start to bring down those walls, I guess? Yeah. So with food. I think the best thing to do is to talk to farmers. What works well on a farm and provides great food without synthetic chemical inputs and um, helps you avoid pests and uh, helps you your soil retain water and all of those kinds of things. What actually helps to rehabilitate a farm that wasn't in good shape and put it in good shape? And once you start to have those conversations, you actually learn from the ground up what works to heal the planet. Mm. And I think because we have become so disconnected in the urban areas from food, where it comes from, from nature, natural ecosystems, we're relearning because we know we want to connect to what's right and good for the planet. And what do we hear? We want to tread lightly. That's, you know, a bit of a catchphrase at the moment. But the people teaching us are not the people working the land and seeing the land change for better or worse. Uh, and I truly believe that that will help us break down so many barriers if mm. we actually just get to know our farmers. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's like that the foundation, right? And from uh-huh. there, from there, we get to understand what goes into growing and producing the food that we consume, mm-hmm. um, what challenges they're up against, both systemic, but also climate and environmental, you know, and I think that going back to the beginning of our conversation, doing that is humanizing the people who grow and produce the food that we eat. And I think it's so easy to to view food as a commodity rather than something that is grown and produced by a person. Mm. Um, and I think convenience has a lot to do with that. Yeah. What's your, your view on how can we, you know, time poor people, people who live in maybe urban or suburban areas, like what can we do to shift the narrative away from convenience, you know, towards a, a even a slightly deeper understanding of where our food comes from? Look, for me, it's something as simple as, even if you can only make it once a month, just head to a farmer's market and have a chat mm. uh, and start to get to know them. And I've got a bunch of lists of questions you can ask kindly, I always say kindly, um, to see how things are grown and start to get to know things. I remember my particular genotype uh, doesn't process B vitamins very well. So I learned very early after trialling plant-based eating at uni and then ending up at the naturopaths, like with all sorts of problems, realizing that meat was definitely going to be better for me, specifically red meat, at least two or three times a week. And uh, and so what was great about having to eat that way for my own health was that then I was a very conscious person. Remember, I'm the chick who joins Greenpeace first day of uni, wanting, craving, doing better for the planet. So then you have to match those two things up. So I start talking to farmers. I remember this conversation with a the, the guy who would sell meat at the markets where I would shop from when I started thinking I really want to get to know where my food comes from if I'm going to eat meat, I want to do it responsibly. And he told me the story about how he was working in abattoirs in the 60s when they introduced grain for the first time to Aussie um, cattle. And all of a sudden they were having liver abscesses and all sorts of hideous growths, pain. You could see the animals were not doing well. And they scratched their heads and the grain and the um, cattle industry went back to the drawing board and they started introducing it in tiny amounts from babyhood so that it was less of a shock to the system. And that seemed to produce less acute situations, but still more chronic disease. I mean, doesn't that just spell everything out about (laughs) processed food and humans, for example? Um, and how unhealthy we are these days. But for me, it was a really interesting story because I, I got to hear from someone who had literally seen the change. And so grass-fed pasture-raised became a non-negotiable for me. I'm not going to cause any more um, pain and suffering than is possible um, to an animal's life. And I'm going to then make sure it gets pasture-raised and grass-fed. Then I'm going to make sure I don't waste anything. I had a day where I wasted chicken livers and I felt so hideously guilty, not only because of um, the chicken's life and part of its body that didn't even get used, um, but also because of the climate impact of Mm. um, a more uh, intensive resource uh, as meat tends to be. But of course, it's a highly nutritious resource. They could say like growing a field full of lettuce does not do as much as one cow in terms of actually feeding the human race. There's so many different things and it takes up so much more space. So you think, oh my gosh, it gets so damn complicated. 
And, and I have always been happy to be swayed in any direction where there's evidence. And for me, it just keeps coming back to talk to the farmers, make sure that they know that they're a part of a, a type of agriculture that's more regenerative than extractive, where they're mm-hmm. growing veggies, legumes. Um, you know, I've got some amazing examples of all sorts of different farmers in the book or raising meat and then having those conversations, you start to then see pictures of these super healthy landscapes of people doing it in a regenerative way, no matter what they're farming. And you start to realize, oh, I'm connected again. And then all of a sudden you start to get super excited when they've got something new on their stall. Oh my gosh, they've got cherries. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it's only for two weeks that they'll have cherry boxes and then they're gone. You gorge on the cherries, then you're kind of sick of cherries. You, think, oh, you know those last cherries that straggle in the bowl yeah. and get a little bit sort of weird by mid-December? And then you're like, yeah, I'm quite happy to see the back of those. But then what happens next year at late November when they're back? You are pumped mm-hmm. for cherry season because you haven't had them all year. Yeah. And you can't have this kind of connection if you don't chat to farmers and don't shop from farmers at least once a month, I would yeah. say. Just try and get to the farmer's market. These days you can now buy from them all direct. Uh, so get to know them on their Instagram accounts, see how they're doing. You can ask them questions in their DMs. Um, you know, like how are you doing strawberries without pesticide? I hear mm. they're the worst sprayed crop in Australia, which they are, by the way. I'd just love to know how you guys are navigating that. And you might get a really great explanation. Some people might not reply and that might be a truth within within itself for you. And you might think, oh, I don't feel comfortable. The thing about changing the conversation from Nestle's marketing calendar to nature's marketing calendar is you start realising what's really good and true. And uh, you start realising, oh, my gosh, so much of the world has been built up into this processed food network, which we needed in the world wars and we do need in aid and relief around the world to get something to people who have nothing. But none of us need processed food who are living in a city with a, a supermarket on every corner and a farmer's market down every block. Like, no one needs any of it. Mm. Um, and that's coming from someone who will never detach themselves from dark chocolate and corn chips. Like (laughs) I do eat a couple of processed food items. I'm the first to admit or a good bowl of soba noodles any, every now and then, but the reconnection piece is just so critical and plugging yourself into natural systems rather than trying to plug yourself into Instagram to understand plug yourself into the farmer's market. That would be my number one piece of advice because then food becomes precious. You then have the face of the person who grows it when you're at your dinner table or your breakfast table. Maybe you're even starting to grow it yourself. We've got four beans at the moment on our little bean plant on our balcony. And I tell you what, we are like, today, do you think? Should we, you know, like so precious, these four beans are going to be totally savoured. And then what happens when you get there? You stop wasting food because it's precious. Yeah. It's precious. Yeah. So the waste goes down, you're connected into the systems. And then all of a sudden, what happens to processed food? You start looking at it, it's all just a bit shiny and fake. Mm -hmm. You start thinking, God, how do they press that into those shapes? How does it really come to taste like teriyaki chicken, a chip? Like, I mean, that has just (laughs) got to be the most ridiculous thing that we've ever been sold. A chip that's flavoured like something from some total other food group. It's just bizarre. And then 
How did they, so the raw material then gets shipped off in petroleum-based trucks into a factory managed by petroleum-based um, energy, most of them still. Uh, then it gets pressed and pumped into these weird shapes and textures and flavours that the focus groups that have their brains hooked up to machines uh, prove that it is going to hit the right reward centre in the brain. And so tick, that mm-hmm. goes on the Nestle market. And when calendar. you say like right reward centre, it's not um, the thing that lights us up in the most joyful, satisfying no, way. It's no, like, it's oh, evil. that's good. Yeah. I want more of it. <laughs> yeah, it's insidious kind yeah. of um, way. And then it gets packaged, petroleum again. Then it gets shipped, petroleum again. Then it lives in supermarket middle aisles where it can live for months at a time before we then choose it, comes home. Then we waste a fifth of it. Like, what? <laughs> it's just crazy. Yep. So you'd say, how do we make our first step to banishing this convenience model? We need to start realising the inconvenient truth, truth about yeah. that convenience model, which yep. I talked about in my first book. And I think we then start to look for what's real and true. And then boom, like it, the, the system fixes itself because we're actually plugged into what feels good and true. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think that that, like that again shows us the, you know, at its center, it's about humanity, right? It's, it's about coming together. Mm. It's about community. It's about caring. It's about love, whether it is, you know, focused on the self whether it is focused on family friends community broader you know broader community Mm. Um, there is something so incredibly powerful about making just one of those switches just having that conversation with the farmer once you can't unhave that conversation you know you don't you can't ever unknow what they tell you Uh, and I think that even if if that shift is not immediate and grand it it is there and you plant a seed with every conversation with every noticing with every bean you grow or every you know every time you stop and think about like an apple you know and where it comes from Mm. and the fact that someone picked it and someone planted it and it's like there is so much um awe to be found and you know you and I had a conversation about awe yeah (laughs) on on my book tour and it's like it, it is I think that that sort of weaves its way through your entire book too is like if you can tap if you can tap into that sense of awe and wonder at the food that we have and that people produce on our behalf um i think that you as you say far less likely to waste it but far more likely to really value it Mm. yeah i think it's incredibly powerful And then all of a sudden you look at the Maltesers and it's not like, oh, I shouldn't, you know, I'm trying to cut down. Mm -hmm. You start to see it for the system it represents and you think that's not healthy for our future. It's so much bigger than whether I should have a few extra sugar calories today. It's not, it stops mm. being an individualistic point of view and starts becoming collective. Takes it away from the me show, makes it the we show. Yeah. And just drop in tacky little catchphrase there. (laughs) just sort of do that as we come to the end um but but also I think it's also important to say um every farmer regardless of how they're farming right now is the hardest working human on the planet because they're producing food and a lot of people are in the farming game producing what the market needs Mm. so it's not to shame you know I have a whole page saying thank you to anyone who farms because it is tough I couldn't imagine 
like I get scared to know there was a snake three days ago on my mum-in-law's property. Like that's how city I am. Um, and yet I've been able to plug into nature myself. So if I can do it, anyone can. That's definite for sure. To also say the beauty of actually starting to connect and find more meaning in the things that we start to choose to put at our table I can tell you from speaking to farmers who have converted their farms over the last 10 years since these conversations started to become more frequent and more powerful at the consumer level, the eater level, I like to say, it gives them the confidence to make the changes and to Mm. go to that biodynamics workshop down the road that they heard Charlie Arnott was giving in the the neighbourhood that day and to just have a listen and see what they might be able to incorporate or change or I'm pretty sure no one wants to be spraying chemicals. I mean, you know, we know that cancers unfortunately show up in farming community clusters time and again. So it's not that anyone wants to do things the way they're doing it necessarily when even they know it might be bad for them or bad for the planet. It's just the market response to what's needed right now. And so if we can change what's needed and give more people confidence by plugging in ourselves and saying, you know what, if you started to grow some organic veggies, I'd totally get a veggie box from you guys. And a lot of farmers start that way. They just do a couple of acres and they change them up and um, start to do some community garden work. There's some great examples. Joe Roebuck, who I featured in the book, um, is an educator in this space in New Zealand. Some amazing things happening where people are starting to diversify their farms and seeing more um, resilience in the mm. tough times with one crop. Oh, all of a sudden I've got something else to sell in the off season. Yeah. It's really exciting. And it is definitely led by um, eater awareness mm. because without the eaters, there's no point in growing something a certain way. So if we literally stopped eating all this ultra processed crap, then guess what's going to start growing instead? The stuff we've replaced that ultra processed crap with on our own tables. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty exciting. It, it is exciting because it, it puts the power back in our hands, mm. you know, at, again, coming back to where we started, every small choice, every conversation, every comment on Instagram saying what you would love to see from a grower, they mm. all matter and they yeah. all add up. And I think it's, that's a really nice place to finish up actually, because that's something we can all do. It is something we can all do. Yeah. And, and can I finish on one little note? You may. The feasts um, are the recipe collections that I put at the end of the book. And um, I absolutely love feasts because I think they're incredibly unifying uh, in the sense that, um, sure, there might be one meat dish on the on the spread, but there's a lot of veggies there. There's a lot of vegan stuff in the mix. There's something where everyone can come together no matter what type of eater you are and share food together. And I think sometimes these days because of this tribalism around um, food ideologies, let's call them, people have lost the ability to feel comfortable inviting a friend who like might even have allergies or, you know, like whatever the other situation is. And I wanted to do something that reminded us no matter who we were and what we believed, we could all come together and share good times. So I think that's for me, one of the most important parts of the book. And that's why I finished with those recipe settings. And it's just the perfect kind of summation of your your message of, mm. you know, let's find common ground. In, that's how you open the book up. Let's find mm. something, some many things that we can agree on about, you know, as part of this conversation. And you sum it up with the epitome of what that looks like, which is coming together, sharing food, mm. something that we all literally need um, and do it in a way that 
is you know human centered and heart centered and and open um, and generous in that in that openness. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Oh, thanks, Brooke. No, well, thank you. Hopefully, we get to come together and share a meal soon. Would that be nice? Yeah, it'd be <laughs> very nice. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I've appreciated it, and obviously, this time has flown because there's many questions left on my list that I would love to ask, but we'll have to do it another time. <laughs> we shall have to do it another time. Thank you, lovely Thank Alex. You. Thank you for having me. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.